You're listening to the Cases That Made a Difference show. Welcome, folks. This is Donna Jones, President and Director of Associate and Client Experience at Advocate Capital. In this episode, we'll talk with attorney Thomas Greer of the Bailey and Greer Law Firm about his recent Cracker Barrel lawsuit. If you have a topic you want to hear more about, email us at podcasts at advocatecapital.com. Let's get to the show. Thanks for joining our podcast today. Hi, everyone. I'm Donna Jones at Advocate Capital, and we have a fantastic episode for you today with our guest, Thomas Greer of the Bailey and Greer Firm located in Memphis, Tennessee. And just by way of reference, Thomas has participated in our podcast previously, but I'd like to share a few of his particulars before we get started today on this uh, really important high-profile case he recently tried to a verdict. Thomas is a graduate of the University of Memphis School of Law. He's tried many personal injury cases to jury verdict. In fact, so many that he was invited to join the prestigious American Board of Trial Advocates organization, and he has served as the president of the Tennessee Trial Lawyers Association, and in 2020 was awarded the distinction of the Outstanding Trial Lawyer of the Year by the Tennessee Trial Lawyers Association. Thomas, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to have you. Thank you. As I mentioned, Thomas is a very accomplished trial lawyer, and today we will discuss a case that has garnered national attention from news outlets like CNN, and the case was tried here in Tennessee. And with that introduction, Thomas, I'd like to start today learning about your client in this case and generally how these chain of events occurred uh, in your client's life. All right. Well, thank you again for having me, Donna. I appreciate it. So my client is named William Cronin. And at the time of his injury, he was about, I'm trying to remember his exact age, 61 or 62, early 60s. Uh, He was born and raised in the South. He, at the age of 16, began to work in textile factories. He went to work on the third shift, would work all night long, go to school in the day, and then sleep in the afternoon and then do it all over again. He dropped out of school when he was about 17, got married, had a young family, and he essentially worked for about the next 50 years in the textile industry. He worked from machine operator to the person who fixes the machine to shift supervisor to plant supervisor. And by the time he was in his late 20s, he was uh, supervising uh, textile plants, these huge factories. So just a really good, hardworking guy. Yes, And so the case that we are going to discuss today, um, Mr. Cronin was your client, the plaintiff, in a lawsuit against Cracker Barrel, a well-known national restaurant chain. And so if you would please, I guess, tell us what happened to Mr. Cronin when he visited the Cracker Barrel. 
All right. So he goes to eat lunch at the Cracker Barrel. That's was one of his normal lunch spots. He'd been going there for, you know, maybe once or twice a week for a long time. And at the end of his meal, he has a meal. He has water to drink with the meal. And at the end of his meal, the waitress sees that his water glass is empty. And she says, oh, well, let me run and refill it for you. And he's they're sort of packing up and leaving the restaurant. She runs to the back, brings back a, a water pitcher with clear liquid in it, pours it into his glass. And as he's standing up to leave, he just grabs the cup sort of quickly, hastily. And he said he was thirsty and he takes about three or four big gulps of this liquid through a straw and then immediately uh, knows that something's wrong. Immediately uh, can't breathe. His mouth and throat begin to burn. He's gasping. He runs to the bathroom where he's uh, attempting to vomit, but nothing's really coming up, but he just knows that he has been um, served something that's not water. Um, he's met at the door as he's leaving the bathroom by an assistant manager at Cracker Barrel who's really intent on having him give information to fill out an incident report. And so really at the scene, all Cracker Barrel cared about was getting this piece of paper filled out by the assistant manager. Nobody offered to take him to the hospital. Nobody offered to call an ambulance. They just got what they needed. And then um, William's dining companion drove him to the local emergency room directly from Cracker Barrel, where he was where he was evaluated. When he was evaluated at the emergency room, they really didn't do much for him. It's a small town. They looked in his the emergency room is a small town emergency room. They looked in his mouth and throat. They didn't see any real evidence of chemical burns or anything like that. They gave him applesauce to eat and then they released him within about an hour of uh, him getting there. Um, His symptoms did not go away and he then developed that afternoon bloating and cramping in his uh, lower abdominal area, continued to have pain in his throat and his mouth. And so he then went to the emergency room in Chattanooga, which is the closest city to where this occurred. This occurred in Jasper, Tennessee, uh, Kimball, Tennessee, excuse me. And at the emergency room in Chattanooga, they did what's called an upper endoscopy. And that's where they run a camera down, down your, in your mouth, down your throat, into your esophagus and into the top part of the stomach. And the results of this also did not show According to the report, did not show caustic injury, did not show chemical burns. It showed some mild redness in the top part of his stomach. Okay. And so I can get to this later. I'm not sure when, when we're going to talk about this, Donna, but it really became the crux of the defense was that there was no real visible signs of injury to his mouth and his throat and his esophagus. So how in the world could this chemical have really caused much harm to you? That became one of the central issues in the case. Okay. And so ultimately, did Mr. Cronin, was he diagnosed with additional injuries? Did he continue to have symptoms? How did his care and injuries progress from that point? 
Yeah. So from that point, uh, he followed up with a gastroenterologist that had seen him in the hospital. And that gastroenterologist basically just said, there's really nothing else we can do for you. And um, he then went to a second opinion gastroenterologist named Dr. Sadowitz there in Chattanooga. And Dr. Sadowitz performed diagnostic tests and tried different kind of medications to try to get his symptoms under control. From the time that the event occurred, the initial problems were mouth and throat pain and burning. Those eventually went away. So the the pain in his mouth and his throat and, and that eventually went away. But what he was left with was reflux pain. So anytime, anytime he eats, doesn't matter. It could be the smallest meal in the world. Doesn't matter what it is. He's going to have pain, uh, like acid reflux pain. Right. Um, and then he also began to experience regular bloating, cramping, and diarrhea. That was just basically on a daily basis. He had these abdominal pain issues and and had and had diarrhea. And those are the symptoms that persisted all the way up until we tried the case eight years after the after the event. Um, about four years after the event, he moved to Brooklyn, New York. He had been dating a, a nice lady and um after this occurred, his symptoms got so bad that he could not continue to work. And so in 2017, he moved up to Brooklyn, New York, and he got another another gastroenterologist that began following him. And both of those doctors, Dr. Sadowitz from Chattanooga and Dr. Iswara from Brooklyn, New York, both testified at his trial that his symptoms, all his problems stemmed from the chemical exposure. Okay. And just to back up for a moment, Thomas, if I heard you correctly, Mr. Cronin ultimately lost his job, his livelihood because of this incident and his injuries. Is that correct? That's correct. He, like I said, he was a hard worker. He, his identity, I mean, he, he identified himself with his work. He loved the people that he worked with. He liked being able to make a living. He liked, he's a people person. And after this event occurred, He's working in these big textile plants. So these are picture a football field and then picture two or three of them. I mean, these are huge, huge industrial plants where he would have to move around the plant and it wasn't a desk job. And so he would be out on the floor and he just couldn't take it anymore. He was in pain. He was having these um, uh, incontinence of, of bowels. It was embarrassing. And he finally got to the point where he couldn't, he couldn't take it anymore, and he stopped working at the age of 63. Now, Cracker Barrel in the case, of course, they claimed that he didn't stop working because of his injuries. He stopped working because he turned 63. Therefore, he qualified for some benefits, and that he just wanted to go up to New York and live with his girlfriend anyway, that it was all a big ruse. That was sort of how they defended that. Um, interestingly, at the trial... Mr. Cronin is a mild-mannered, just a nice guy. And the most animated that he got during the trial wanted to make the point that he didn't move to Brooklyn, New York because he wanted to. He moved there because of the circumstances. He needed a place to live. He wasn't earning a living anymore. And this, this opportunity was offered him. And so I said during the trial, I said, well, 
William, tell the jury how much do you like um do you like Brooklyn? Oh no, 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 no. You could just tell he's a country boy. He he was uh not happy to move there. He had to do that because of because of what happened to him. That's such a shame. And so as you tell the story, I can just visualize him and he is doing everything he can to make the best of this horrible situation that was handed to him. I just, I I totally see that. So I guess at some point, my next question is how did you come to represent him and how did you learn about his situation and move forward? Well, it's interesting. My dad initially was Mr. Cronin's lawyer. And my dad practiced law for 40 something years. And so I actually knew about the case. He, we don't work together. Uh, I practice in Memphis and he is in Dunlap, Tennessee or was in Dunlap, Tennessee. But of course we do similar kind of work. So I had known about the case and we had talked about it off and on. And, and then my dad, unfortunately he passed away in 2019, suddenly unexpectedly. And so my sister did work with my dad and she did more domestic work and didn't do a whole lot of personal injury work. And she took over his firm. And so uh, after he passed away, we sort of sat down and I was helping her go through cases. And this was a case I knew about it. I thought it was a good case. Um, My dad had actually done some work on it, had taken the deposition of Dr. Sadowitz, had taken a few depositions and they had mediated the case. It didn't settle. And so at that point, I got involved and, and worked the case up through trial at that point. And as you got to, as you got to know Mr. Cronin and know, I guess, more deeply, more intimately, the facts of the case, I, I'm curious to understand um, how Cracker Barrel defended the case and did they ever make any settlement offers? What was that process like? Well, before I got involved, Mr. Cronin had gone to mediation with Cracker Barrel, and I wasn't involved at that point. But my understanding from that mediation is they weren't they weren't really close at all in terms of offering any kind of substantial money to compensate him. The defense I alluded to earlier was that there's no objective evidence that this chemical was a really strong chemical that burned him, that that would be causation, a causation defense that how do we know he didn't have all these other problems going on? And so he was 63 years old uh, or 61 years old when it occurred. And he did have a lot of other health problems. He was um, a smoker. He um, he had an enlarged liver, which many, not from alcohol, but just as many people do as they get older. Um, he had, he had several other health issues that could cause the same symptoms that he was experiencing from the Cracker Barrel incident. So that was part of the defense was how do we really know it was us versus all these other, all these other five or six health problems that he had going on? How do you really know it was us? That was a defense. Another defense they had was just flat out denial that they had served this man any chemicals. They basically said, prove it. We say he wasn't served anything, so prove it. 
You got to prove oh it. Oh my stars! That okay. is ridiculous. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, that's it's it may be ridiculous to you or somebody that doesn't do this kind of work, but we see it all the time. Um, you know, it's sort of like, uh, yeah. So we see it all the time. So I'll tell you about that part of the case in terms of proving how we proved it was Echo Sam. It's pretty interesting that your listeners hopefully will find interesting. Sure. And then I can talk to you more about. Um, how we prove the causation as well. But let me go to proving that he was served a chemical. So when I got the case in the file, there was a three page document that was titled safety data sheet for EchoSan. And what a safety data sheet is, it's every chemical for every chemical that goes into any kind of workplace, federal law mandates that there's a safety data sheet that tells the workplace, here's what the chemical is, here's how you should handle it, here's what you should do if somebody gets exposed, This, these are the chemical makeups. It's a very detailed um, document that tells you all about the chemical. And so within his possession, he had this document. And at the top of the document, there was a fax number that I'd figured out was from Cracker Barrel store where he ate and it had a store number and that matched up with the store number. And it was, and the fax was sent somewhere on the day of the incident about 45 minutes after it happened. Wow. So I said to William, where did this thing come from? Now, when I got involved, it was five years after the event. And so he, he couldn't remember exactly. He had a few ideas, but just frankly couldn't remember. Hey, God, I don't know how I got this document, but I got it. And so I sort of fretted over how do I prove if they're going to deny this thing you know, years later, how do I prove that this was the chemical? Well, he's, he's got it. How did he get it? All right. So the defense in, in all kinds of cases like this, they want to go out and they want to request the medical records of, of the plaintiff to make sure that they're not missing something. And so the defense in this case had subpoenaed records from all sorts of providers that Mr. Cronin had before and after the event. And they had subpoenaed the medical records from Grandview Hospital where he was seen right after this event occurred. And so I thought, I had the records. I had gone through them, the set that we have. I thought maybe they're in, maybe the, maybe they were in that set of records. Maybe it was faxed to the hospital. That would make sense. If somebody got poisoned in your store, you would send it to the hospital. So sure enough, as I'm going through the records that the defendants subpoenaed, within the ER records is this safety data sheet for EchoSan. Right. So what does that tell me? That tells me that somebody at that store within minutes of this occurring and knowing that he had been taken to Grandview, they faxed this chemical sheet to Grandview. So that was my hallelujah moment. Thank goodness. Now I can prove it. Now, how do I really cram this down their throat? Um, And so what I did next was took the deposition of a corporate representative for Cracker Barrel for, I think most of your listeners are lawyers. They know what that means, but if there's any non-lawyers, if you're suing a company and you want information in a deposition, but you don't know the right person to answer the question, you list out multiple topics that you want to know about, and then they provide the witness. So that's what I did. I listed out, these are all the things I want to know, and they produced a witness. 
And so the witness, um, I guess, was unaware that this Echo Sand data sheet was in the medical records. And so I got to cross-examine her and present the safety data sheet to her after she had denied. I deny we served this man anything. I deny he's injured. We don't ever put chemicals in water pitchers. Denied everything. Then I present to her this fax with bait stamps that her own lawyers had put on the medical records showing that Cracker Barrel had sent this information to the hospital. And then I asked her, can you, you know, why do you think they sent that to the hospital? Oh, I don't know. Uh, You know, can you think of any other reason that they would send a echo sand safety data sheet to the emergency room that Mr. Cronin was going to on the day of the event within minutes? Can you think of any other reason other than the people in the store knew he was served echo sand? I can't think of any other reason. Well, of course, that's the only reason that there is. I mean, it was was blatantly obvious. Um, And so that was, in my mind, that was, that was it on liability and showing that they had served him the chemical. And we still had the causation issues that, that were present, but that was, um, that was a big, important deposition. And And so, just a quick question, if I may. The way I understand um, the incident itself is is that they had this Echo Sand chemical that's used for cleaning equipment inside the kitchen in a generic water pitcher like a server would serve water from with no markings or identification that it was a hazardous chemical. Is that pretty much correct? That's correct. That's what we prove. That's what I believe. And that's what the jury believed. Um, and, and so how did it get there? People would say, yes. well, why, why was it, why was it there? So here, here's why it was there. Um, at the end of every shift, the servers at Cracker Barrel would unscrew the parts of the soda fountain machine. Most of us now have gone into a fast food place where you serve yourself Coke or whatever. And, and if you'll go in there, next time you do that, look, and there's a little round ring that the soda comes out of. Okay. And you unscrew that ring, and then there's another piece that's on the inside of that. Well, those have to be cleaned every day, or they get all gunked up with the syrup from the soda fountain, from the soda. And so, the servers were trained to unscrew those parts. And what they're supposed to do, and what OSHA says you're supposed to do, and what Cracker Barrel's unwritten policies say you're supposed to do, is if you're going to use chemicals to soak anything or use in any way, it has to be in a marked container. So what they should have done is if they were going to soak those in any kind of chemical, soak them in a red bucket that says chemicals and everybody know what was, what was in the container. Instead, they were using a shortcut. They were just grabbing a clear plastic water pitcher. Like everybody can visualize anytime you go into a restaurant, putting those parts down in the water pitcher and then adding the echo sand, which is a, which, by the way, is bleach. It's just a commercial grade bleach is all it is. Wow. Um, they were putting those into the water pitcher and then adding some water and then let them soak there. And then the next morning, somebody would come in, take the parts out, screw them into the machine, chuck the water and 
go about their business. So uh, evidently what happened is the, the morning that Mr. Cronin, the day that Mr. Cronin was injured, the parts were removed, but nobody threw the water out. The person got distracted or, you know, something interfered with that process. So how did we prove that part of the case? We right. proved that with former employees who worked at Cracker Barrel who testified at trial. This is how we did it. And, and the, the, so I told you what the, what the corporate representative said was, we have policies against this. We would never do this. We didn't do this. The problem with the corporate representative was she didn't even work at that store until two years after the event. And so you have her swearing up and down. Number one, we didn't serve a Mecco Sam when we just proved that we did. And then swearing up and down that we follow these policies and procedures. And then my next three witnesses at trial were former workers who say we always used unmarked water pitchers to uh, store chemicals. And not only that, when we opened this store up, people from Cracker Barrel's corporate office trained us to do this way, do it this way. And not only that, I was a, one of the one of the witnesses said I was a trainer and I trained people to do that. It was part of the training process. Um, there was an assistant manager, the same assistant manager that took that incident report that I told you about earlier. He testified at trial. He was fully aware that they were using water pitchers to um, soak these parts in chemicals. And he did nothing about it because that's how it was always done from the first day he worked there. So it was apparent that's how it, how it happened. So for, for the benefit of our listeners who are not lawyers, if, if I understand what you've just described, Cracker Barrel not only violated the OSHA policy on hazardous materials, they violated their own corporate policy? Correct. So OSHA has a couple of parts. One, one of the parts for this particular area of safety is OSHA mandates that companies have safety procedures around chemicals. And they mandate these specific rules that you never store chemicals in unmarked containers. And they all, OSHA also mandates that Cracker Barrel and other places of employment should have written policies saying, don't do this. Now, the problem that we see in all kinds of cases are the problems are companies can have really, really great policies. But what matters is, do you follow those policies? And what I argued at, at trial was actions speak louder than words, that all you have here is written documentation for Cracker Barrel that we do it this way. But everybody who worked at Cracker Barrel at that time said that's not how we did it. And I further argued that really that written policy for Cracker Barrel was just so it could protect itself in a case like this. So it could say to the jury, hey, we have a good policy. Don't hold us accountable. That's really what it was there for. It was not there for the purpose of actually being followed and, and Cracker Barrel did not train on that policy. Now, you mentioned that um, former employees and managers testified at the trial. What was that like in terms of, clearly their testimony was in direct contradiction to what the corporate representative 
said. And so how did that play out at the trial in terms of the jury's, I guess, reception of this testimony? Well, clearly they believed the former employees. The jury, by the way, they deliberated for only about 30 minutes before bringing back a verdict. Wow. Two and a half day trial. But um, I th- I'm guessing here because, I mean, I, of course, I wasn't in the jury room when they deliberated, but when Cracker Barrel denied having served served this man a chemical and made all these crazy denials, and then it was quickly proven that that's not true. I mean, you, you're, you're not telling the truth in your deposition. All the credibility was lost um, on how they did things because clearly he was served this. The, the the former workers, I mean, they, they had some baggage that Cracker Barrel tried to argue that the first witness I called that she had been fired and they insinuated that there was some axe to grind. And that's why she was testifying that way. The associate manager that I that I subpoenaed to trial had given a deposition previously and claimed that they didn't know what was in the water pitcher. But when he testified previously, he was still working at Cracker Barrel. And by the time trial rolled around, he wasn't working there anymore. And I think he just had a guilty conscience that he wasn't forthright in his first deposition. And so he came clean at trial and they they impeached him with his former testimony and, and said, you know, you're changing your testimony here today. And he agreed, I'm changing it, but this is what happened. And then the third witness, former um, employee, is actually a one of, was one of my is one of my clients and from another case. And I just happened to see her name in this long list of employees that they said, these are all the employees who worked here at the time. And I saw her name and she was a server and I called her and, and said, how did y'all clean the parts of the soda fountain machine? And she told me exactly how they did it. And it comported with everything that all the other witnesses had said. And so those were the main fact witnesses that helped establish exactly how this thing happened. And so it doesn't sound like that went very well um, for Cracker Barrel and, and, and good for you. You, you mentioned earlier um, causation with regard to Mr. Cronin's injury. So how did that play out in terms of your presentation at trial? Well, what we found, what we learned was both of his doctors, Dr. Sadowitz and Dr. Iswara, they came to their conclusion, they came to their opinion on causation, basically by a process of elimination. So what they did was they looked at every conceivable thing that they know about in the field of gastroenterology, and they tried to figure out if that was the cause of his problems. So the, the, the health issues I told you about earlier, um, he they did tests. So they did hit a, a hiatal hernia. And so they did a stomach emptying study and that, te- that tests how quickly food moves through your stomach. And if it's not moving at an appropriate rate, then that can be the cause of your reflex. Well, that was normal. Um, they do something called a, a HIDA scan for a, a gallbladder issue. He had a, there was maybe some concern about a gallbladder. They did a test for that. They found out that no, the gallbladder is not causing pain, not causing discomfort. They did a CT scan for the enlarged liver. They, you know, every, everything that, that popped up. Oh, there was a, there was an allegation by Cracker Barrel that maybe it was a bacterial infection. 
any conceivable explanation for this man's symptoms, Dr. Sadowitz and Dr. Azwara systematically went through and tested for it and then ruled it out. And so by process of elimination, they said, well, the only thing that it could be is the chemical exposure. And Dr. Azwara is an interesting guy. He went so far as to really explain what happened, which was it was a disruption of the gut microbiome that is, is an emerging there's an emerging understanding of the importance of the gut microbiome and that different chemicals can affect people differently. And maybe this would not have hurt everybody, but the genetic makeup and just how the, Mr. Cronin's condition at the time that it occurred, there was a disruption in his immune system and his gut microbiome. And then that then resulted in all the symptoms that he complained of consistently. Um, at trial, my point on causation was pretty simple that it's either you either use your common sense and this event is what caused his problems, or it's just a big coincidence. You have a man who's 61 years old who never, ever had gastrointestinal problems before this. Not a single medical record for 60 years of his life, does he complain of anything remotely close to these problems? And then this event happens, and then he consistently complains of them thereafter. And so the way you describe Mr. Cronin, I think of him as um, salt of the earth, hard worker, you know, all of those things. And so my guess is that his employment records probably backed up that theory. So in other words, before this incident, he wasn't missing work because of gastrointestinal problems like he had. But then you look at the after, was that part of your presentation at trial as well? Well, sometimes in cases, the defense will actually subpoena employment records. They didn't do that in this case. But we did offer testimony when I put him on the stand. The first, one of the first things we did was we walked through his employment history from age 16 all the way till he retired. Oh, wow. And he did not. He had maybe one period where a plant shut down. And he was between jobs. He might have been on unemployment for a couple of weeks at one period of his life. But beyond that, he this man worked his whole life. And so it was a huge one of the big pillars of our case was showing this is not the kind of person who makes up an injury. Right. He's a, he's a good, honest, hardworking human being. And so I guess another part I'm guessing of Cracker Barrel's defense, did they try to portray Mr. Cronin as kind of what, people commonly call a malingerer. I just, I can't imagine if they did that, that that would sit well with any jury. I mean. No, they didn't. Uh, the, the lawyer that defended the case at trial was a, a good lawyer, a good guy uh, too. They acknowledged, and, and even Cracker Barrel's experts, they had two experts. They acknowledged that his condition was real. They just said it was probably caused by something else. They had an expert named Dr. Anderson from Knoxville, and he suggested that Mr. Cronin had irritable bowel syndrome. There's no known cause of irritable bowel syndrome. So they did at least acknowledge the injury. Now, they also suggested that 
it, it wasn't that bad. Maybe it wasn't as bad as we were claiming and why, you know, he could have continued to work. They didn't totally fold on, on the injuries, but they did not say he was malingering or making anything up. Okay. You mentioned, I guess, the trial you said was two and a half days. The jury returned verdict in 30 minutes. That seems that seems pretty quick to me. How did you feel and, and what was it like when the jury presented its verdict? It was, well, it was quick. You know, you never know. I mean, I've had some quick deliberations and I felt good about the case. It went, the, the trial went as well as I could have expected. My my closing maybe was not the greatest, but it was exactly what I wanted um, to, to get in front of the jury and everything came out nicely. So when they came back with the verdict, I, I mean, I still felt and I, w- I was confident, but not overly confident, but I felt like we were going to get a decent verdict. Um, I had asked for between. So let me back up a little bit. We had an expert to calculate his lost wage claim. Oh, yes. And so we said that he retired at 63 and we claimed he would have worked until 69, which can be a stretch for some people to think, well, why wouldn't this guy have worked till he's 68 or 69 years old? Most people don't. Well, we just used his work record to say, yes, he would have. He'd st- he, and he testified, I'd still be working today if I didn't have these problems. Wow. And so that was about 135000 we also had a life care planner who calculated his future medical needs, and that was about uh, close to 300000 And so that part of the case added up to about 728000 is what I asked the jury for. And then the verdict came back 730000 So they gave exactly what I asked for on that. And then... The second component would be non-economic damages, so pain and suffering, loss of enjoyment of life, things like that. Right. And I asked the jury in my closing for a range between $2.2 million and $3.6 million. Anywhere in that range, I argued, was fair and reasonable for what this man had gone through and what he was going to go through for the next 16 years, his life expectancy. And the jury returned a verdict for $3.6 million for that, so the top end of what I had, the range I had asked for. And then the third thing they did on the verdict form was was to find that Cracker Barrel's conduct was not only negligent but was reckless and that we were entitled to punitive damages. And that's a different standard. I can I can speak to that um, at some point here if we have time. And okay. so um, when the verdict, when it was all said and done, what Mr. Cronin said was, he, we were in tears and he was in tears and he said, they believed me. Oh. He was, he was vindicated. He had been through hell and he's continuing to have problems, but you know, the, the denial, the way that he was treated by Cracker Barrel, the, the, the peanuts that he was offered to try to settle the case, it was sort of, um, it was, he was vindicated in, in his position and what he did. And so at the end of the day, Mr. Cronin, I'm sure, is like many of your clients. Um, he wanted justice. It, it, it wasn't about the money. Like you said, he wanted to be vindicated. He wanted someone to know his story and how he had been treated. And 
do you find most of the time with your clients that, that that's what they really want? They and, and they want Cracker Barrel to do the right thing. I've always heard that juries want to do the right thing. Is that your experience? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so you mentioned the punitive damage award. Um, my very cursory understanding of that is that th- those kind of damages are meant to punish. That's where the word comes from. What was the punitive damage award? And, and talk about that a little bit. I'll tell you, I have, they're rare. So you don't know, there, there aren't many lawyers who actually get verdicts for punitive damages. I've only done it one previous time. And the way it works in Tennessee is it's bifurcated. So there's two parts. There's basically two trials. So the first phase of the trial, you're proving liability for both negligence and reckless conduct for the punitives. And then you're putting on your damages. And when the jury deliberates the first time, the question before them is, was Cracker Barrel negligent, which they said yes. And then how much do you pay for the compensatory damages? Compensatory would be the things like lost wages, the medicals, the pain and suffering, all those things I talked about earlier. And then the jury is asked, do you find by clear and convincing evidence that Cracker Barrel is reckless? So two things to note there. Clear and convincing evidence is a higher burden of proof than negligence. Negligence has a burden of proof of preponderance of the evidence. So what's more likely right than wrong, a slight tipping of the scales. Clear and convincing evidence is what's required to prove recklessness. So you have a heightened burden of proof, which is why it's more rare. And, and so the jury determined that the conduct was reckless. And what recklessness is, is when a defendant knows of a substantial risk and they disregard it anyway, and that it's a gross deviation from the standard of care. So it's different than, you know, maybe somebody not paying attention and running a red light and causing a wreck versus, you know, they're driving a hundred miles an hour and they're, you know, it's just a, it's a, just a different level of, of culpability. So then after the jury checks the box and says, yes, we find for reckless conduct, then additional information can be given to them so they can assess punitive damages. So what can be, what they can be told in the punitive damages stage is different than what they get to know the first time. So what they can learn in the punitive damages stages are things like what's the net worth of the defendant? Uh, how much money did the plaintiff have to spend to get to trial? You know, all sorts of factors that they can consider. Well, this verdict came down at, I think it was 4.30 in the afternoon. They had deliberated for 30 minutes, got a verdict back. I had sent some discovery where I had, I had financial information on the company that I could have presented, you know, some detailed financial information on the company, but I just, it was a, it was a gut decision that I didn't need to do all that. Okay. This jury, they were going to do what they were going to do. And it was four 30 and it was bad weather. It had been snowing sort of off and on during the day. And I just thought we've got to get this on. We got to get it on, uh, get it over with. And so I called back to the stand the same corporate representative that I played a video. I played her video deposition as my first witness at trial, but the deposition I told you about earlier with the Echo Sand document, I called her back to the stand. That was the only witness I could call from Cracker Barrel. And, and um, 
I had had the foresight earlier in the day to text an associate from my office to say, go through those financial records and tell me how much money Cracker Barrel made in 2014. And it was something like $4.62 billion, or it may have been 2.62, some, some billions of dollars. And so I put this lady, poor lady, back on the stand. I said, ma'am, would you tell the jury how much money Cracker Barrel made in the year 2014? I don't know. Well, if I told you it was $4.62 billion, would you have any reason to dispute that? No. And then that was all my proof for my punitive damages stage. And then you do closing arguments. And so I argued to the jury that, and and I'm, I'm a little bit embarrassed. I was not as prepared as I should have been to argue my punitives, even though I knew I thought I should get them. I just wasn't, I was so wrapped up in making sure I proved my first part of my case I neglected to really prepare for my punitive argument. But what I argued in punitive in the closing argument for punitive damages was that we all know as parents that if you don't punish a child appropriately, the conduct is going to happen again. And sometimes we don't want to do it and it might hurt us to, to deliver that punishment. But conduct rewarded is conduct repeated. And if you don't bring back a verdict large enough, to let this company know what they did was wrong and you want it to stop, it's going to happen again and again and again. And so your verdict has got to send a message throughout the state of Tennessee and throughout America that this unsafe conduct is not going to be tolerated. We're not going to put up with it. And that was the argument. And lo and behold, the message was sent eventually around the country uh, that you know, the, the, like you said, it was Washington Post and CNN and people.com and all kinds of other places. People read about this and they were shocked and they were offended. And my hope is that there are some other restaurants around the country, Cracker Barrels, maybe other, maybe non-Cracker Barrels, who, who read about this and said, oh, my goodness, we are exposing our customers to harm. Let's change our way. So I hope it prevents injury from somebody else in the future. And so does Mr. Cronin, by the way. Well, and that's a great point that you make, Thomas. And I think the public at large sometimes doesn't have um, the right perspective on plaintiff trial lawyers. And so, you know, on the one hand, you're you're trying to get justice for Mr. Cronin, of course, and you did. So congratulations. That, that's an amazing verdict for you and for Mr. Cronin. But the other part of it is that trial lawyers make the world a safer place. Like you just said, you know, how many restaurants might have the same or a similar practice and wonder, you know, how many people in the world have been to a Cracker Barrel and now think they're lucky stars that they weren't served from that water pitcher. It's, um, it's absolutely, um, it, it, it makes me angry. I, I think that's probably what happened to your jury. Do you think they just got mad at Cracker Barrel and said, this was unacceptable and we're not going to let you get away with it? Well, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if they got angry. I mean, certainly on the punitive phase, the purpose is to punish. And in, in, in Tennessee, the purpose is, is two parts. It's to punish the wrongdoer, Cracker Barrel, and it's to deter future conduct. That's what our law says. It, it, you're supposed to bring back a verdict that tells not only the defendant, Cracker Barrel in this case, that this conduct is not acceptable, but tells the community and tells the state of Tennessee and tells America that this is not to be tolerated. 
And after the news broke, we've had we had multiple calls of people with similar complaints, you know, not against Cracker Barrel per se, but this kind of thing happens from time to time. And so I think there there was some good that came out of it in terms of letting the world know about this unsafe practice. For Mr. Cronin's purposes, he would take the the verdict that we got, he'd take all that money and throw it in the ocean if he could go back in time and have his health back. But that's the only remedy that we were allowed under the law. And it's an unfair remedy, but that's the only remedy there is. The other injustice I'll tell you about in this case is Tennessee, unfortunately, is a state that has caps on damages. We have caps on non-economic damages and we have caps on punitive damages. So you have this jury in Marion County uh, who listened to all the proof, who listened to the court's instructions, who were qualified by the judge to sit on the case. Uh, each side had a right to challenges and whatnot, uh, peremptory challenges and cause challenges. And they heard all the evidence and they said, this is what the case value is. And our legislatures, our law, our politicians in Tennessee um, over 10 years ago said, we don't care what juries think. The most that anybody can ever get for non-economic damages is $750,000. And so the $3.6 million that the jury said he was entitled to is reduced down to $750,000. That is just um, unbelievable. Absolutely yeah. unbelievable. So on top of that, when that, when that portion gets reduced, it makes the compensatory damages about $1.5 million. Tennessee also has a law that caps punitive damages to two times the compensatory damages award. So the punitive damages award of $5 million got reduced down to about $3 million. So you have a verdict that goes from $9.3 million to about $4.5 million. So it's a, almost a $5 million handout to a huge corporation that endangered the public for years, that injured this man, that ruined his life. And in Tennessee, we think it's the appropriate thing to do to give a break to a company like Cracker Barrel. And it's really, really unfair. And it only hurts people who are seriously injured. It doesn't affect the small cases. It affects people who have serious injuries. Absolutely. And so... Based on what you just described, the reduction in the verdict, you know, based on the Tennessee law, is it your feeling that even after Cracker Barrel got, we'll say, a $5 million discount on this verdict, they're still probably going to appeal the case? Is that where you think it's headed? All indicators point that way. So they had... Cracker Barrel had three representatives at the trial watching the whole trial. I don't know if they were all from Cracker Barrel or if they may have been from a couple of different insurance companies, mm-hmm. but they're sitting there watching the trial. They kept in, uh, insinuating that they were going to try to make an offer to settle the case. The only offer that came down during trial was the question to me of, would you consider a high-low agreement, which where you agree to a high and a low, and if you go over the high, you get the high, and if you go below, you get the low, which I said no. But they're sitting there watching this trial, and I, and I remember thinking, they must not be watching the same trial I'm watching, because this is a bloodbath. Mm-hmm. And they are not taking this case seriously. And so then, after the verdict 
is over, the only thing they've done is file a motion for a new trial, a motion to set aside the verdict, and they brought in three or four appellate lawyers from Texas, which tells me they're going to, you know, they're going to fight to try to protect their money like they've been doing from day one. Wow, that is, um, it, it's one of the things also about plaintiff trial lawyers that has always spoken to me personally. And so, like you said, th- this incident happened in 2014. And so Mr. Cronin has waited eight years already just to get vindication, to to realize justice. And the jury has spoken very loudly and very clearly. And now, because Cracker Barrel has the, those kind of corporate resources, he's going to continue to wait while the case goes up on appeal and still hasn't received one dollar of compensation. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, not a penny. That's um that's that's pretty incredible. I I can't even begin to understand from your perspective as a trial lawyer, this this has to be one of those cases that I would think would would stay with you. It's a, a career maker for a younger lawyer, certainly not someone in your position who has tried so many cases to jury verdict. But would you say um, that it it's a memorable case and obviously one you'll continue to work on for some time to come? For sure. There, there are so many parts of this case that are if, if a case can have sentimental value, this had it because it was my dad's case. Oh, yeah. He took one of the depositions that we played by video at trial. I never got to try a case with my dad, but having him basically do one of the witnesses by video, uh, he was a part of the case. My sister t- tried the case with me. She took a couple of the witnesses. She, she uh, examined Mr. Cronin's longtime girlfriend and she examined the economist. So I got to try a case with my sister. Wow. It was in that part of the country, the part of the state where I grew up. I grew up in Southeast Tennessee. Um, I, I, so I stayed with my mom and had a home cooked meal during the trial. So it had, you know, implications there. Um, and then the result, and then just to represent a man like William Cronin, who was just such a inspiration for hard work and honesty was, was such an honor to do that. And, and, um, we were delayed by COVID. And so this was the first trial that I had handled since COVID. So I had done a lot of preparation and I had read a lot of books and listened to a lot of podcasts on great trial lawyers. So I was really ready to go. And so all the stars aligned and, and uh, we were able to get this, this just verdict for this man who deserved it. Well, thank you. And, and thank you for, for what you do for, for making, our world a safer place and and for getting justice for people like Mr. Cronin. As we wrap up today, I know you have other cases you need to be working on. If if someone listening today has had a similar experience at a restaurant or any place and would like to reach out to you or your firm, what would be the best way for them to contact you? Sure, you can go to my website baileygreer.com. So it's B-A-I-L-E-Y greer.com, G-R-E-E-R. My office phone number is 901-680-9777. Since my third year in law school, all I've done is work on personal injury cases, wrongful death cases, car wrecks, truck wrecks, medical malpractice cases, cases like this one. So it's all we do. We're based in Memphis and for anybody that 
needs me, that's where you find me. For any lawyers out there listening, I've had so many lawyers from across the country call me after this verdict and ask for help or advice on their cases that may be similar. I can give my time freely. Uh, I'll share anything I can as long as you're on the right side of the case. I'll share anything that I can that I think will help another lawyer. I'm happy to do that. That's fantastic. Thank you again for your time today and and thank you for what you do. We we appreciate it and even people who don't know what you do should appreciate it. And uh, congratulations again. And we will keep an eye out to see and hope that Mr. Cronin gets his justice here in the near future. Well, thank you, Donna. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Have a good day. Thanks again for joining us today. This podcast was brought to you by Advocate Capital, purveyors of the Advertrack Case Expense Funding Service. Advocate Capital is a team of Seventh Amendment champions who have been serving plaintiff law firms nationwide since 1999. Through a partnership with Pinnacle Financial Partners, Advocate can also assist with all of your firm's banking needs. And the Advocate's AdvoCap Insurance Agency serves the insurance needs of plaintiff law firms exclusively. Banking products are offered by Pinnacle Bank, a Tennessee bank, member FDIC. Insurance products are not deposits, not insured by the FDIC or any other government agency, nor are they guaranteed by Pinnacle Bank. For more information, visit AdvocateCapital.com.